Good morning. I'd um, like to spend a moment with you on one of the distinctions between attention, manasikara, and mindfulness, sati. This is uh, not going to be technical, so um, in a non-technical sense, one of the big distinctions between the two is that sati is considered always wholesome in its effect. While we can be attentive of even unwholesome things, say cleaning a bank safe or aiming at a target uh, uh, which both requires some degree of attention um, to be executed successfully, um, they don't become necessary wholesome activities by virtue of our attention. So, attention alone doesn't make our activity or our pursuit a wholesome one. While attending to something mindfully uh, brings in other factors of the human mind, and these other factors make it what make what we do a wholesome activity. Um, at least that is what earliest Buddhist teachings are um, speaking of. So one way uh, of infusing our sati or our attention in wholesome ways is by bringing the Brahmaviharas together with this mindfulness. So that we not just clinical, turn into clinical observers of our experience, but that we become uh, relationally adept, that we attune. One of the things about mindfulness is it is a self-regulating capacity. In other words, it acknowledges relationship and it is capable of attuning itself to the object or the process it enters into relationship with. A few days ago I spoke about climates and sati is highly aware of the climate it creates. We never relate in um, empty space. We re relate in contextual ways. And without going into the philosophical implications of this, just as a meditator, what does it mean if the Brahmaviharas are part of my mindfulness? How? Would that have an effect? So we have these four immeasurables as universal and um, qualities of empathy, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They will need a little more space than I have right now. But as a meditator, let us break that down. What is the psychology of the first one of metta? Love or loving kindness, friendliness. There are differing translations for it. What does it mean if I turn towards 
my own experience, my own inner world in an attitude of loving-kindness. What does that mean? It means, first of all, I orient towards. In other words, I approach, I make space, I create availability, and I display interest. I become interested in something. Psychologically, that means a whole, a whole lot of things. Um, if I turn to my own inner experience in a way that is interested, welcoming, spacious, accepting, um, available, then <clears throat> this produces a very different experience than when I say, turn inward and give orders. Yeah? or turn inward, inwards and pass judgment, or, or demand that uh, my mind be still, or that my focus of attention be exclusively at the tip of my nose. So I get a very different sort of relationship when I go in there commandeering, or when I go in there with what I described as the psychological breakdown of metta, namely interest, availability, um, resonance, turning towards, spacious, accepting. Yeah? These are all qualities we would generally appreciate if people extend them to us. Now, our inner world is in many ways, or how we relate to our inner world is in many ways a mirror image of how we have been related to in our outer world and how we probably relate in our outer world. So it makes a lot of sense (coughs) that we apply both in meeting our inner world and in meeting our outer world these qualities of the immeasurable states of mind. Can I identify, if I can't find loving-kindness for the stuff that's going on in my heart and mind right now? Can I at least be interested? Can I be turning towards it? Can I accept it? Ah, That's a big one, isn't it? Said so easily, acceptance, but how do we live acceptance of things we don't want to see, we're afraid of? we don't like. How does one accept that? The minimal form of metta is, and it doesn't get any cheaper than that, the minimal form is offering coexistence. I offer this thing to be there. I offer this, the existence in my experience. I I offer or I promise that I don't combat this experience. I, the minimal offer of metta is non-hostility. I am not going to try to move you out of my experience. You pain, you sadness, you laziness, you distractedness. I am not going to attack you. In other words, I allow you to be present and to be there, and I will take it from there. Can't quite like you right now, 
would be exaggerated to call this love, but basically pain in you, my knee, you're allowed to be there. Yeah? I'm not trying to get rid of you. That's the minimal, that's the entry level offer to, of metta to uh, an aspect of my experience. So as a meditator, if I wish to practice a mindfulness that is infused by loving kindness, and this loving kindness manifests an orient, a willing orientation towards interest, acceptance, availability, a warm spaciousness for whatever takes place in there. That's how I meet my breath. That's how I meet my sleepiness. That's how I meet my own self-judgments. That's how I meet my body sensations. And this is what I would definitely suggest. Now, some things, they don't need a warm, welcoming acceptance. Yeah? If you say, if you're dealing with sleepiness, this is not really the most appropriate form of uh, engaging with this. However, you may actually, before your sleepiness starts to unravel, meet it in exactly that way. You have to actually be willing to be sleepy and lethargic before this may change. Many things in our own in the life only start talking if they're being met with in a way that the mind deems us to be serious about that meeting. So many of our things will simply not come up in clear enough ways unless we're willing to actually meet him deeply. There's an economy in the psyche, and that economy says, if she isn't really there for me, I'm not going to show myself. So if growing means growing together, and if transformation and liberation means that I need to get into a deeper understanding and relationship before I can transform something, then it means I have to meet it. I have to meet it deeply. It's not going to go away because I bark or because I'm just hanging in there by the skin of my teeth waiting till it finally lifts. Or because, you know, this is just how it is for the first 40 years of meditation and then it's, you know, we're over the worst. Meeting is something else. So the Buddha suggests we infuse our sati with qualities of the Brahma-viharas. What would the second one and the third one look like? Karuna and mudita, joy and um, compassion, are both capacities of the heart to resonate with, to meet and gently resonate with either the pain or the suffering aspect in the case of karuna, or meet with and resonate with the joyous aspect of suffering. If that aspect of uh, what I meet is wholesome within myself, then this is called simple joy. If what I meet with in others is wholesome, then this is resonant joy or sympathetic joy. Mudita is both. It's the capacity to be happy for the success or the, um, the goodness in somebody else or for the goodness that arises out of my own mind. The genuine capacity to be joyous about this.
So, in psychological terms, this would mean there is a space in my heart or in my chest area, a space in which something is allowed to actually be painful or be joyous. And I have the capacity and the space and the confidence in my own holding that I can go there and allow myself to feel this. The oldest word for the term compassion in Pali language is anukampa, and that comes from the word to tremble, to tremble along with something. In other words, I allow something to come so close that I tremble along with it. Now that doesn't mean I lose my ground, it doesn't mean I'm going all emotional, um, wringing my hands in helplessness and completely abandon myself uh, to suffering and jump into the hole um, of pain and confusion. Um, that's not really karuna, that's its close enemy. Karuna means I do not forsake my own ground. And while I tremble along with somebody else, I do know of my own health, I do know of my own resources. And my resonance leads to appropriate action. In Tibetan iconography, this is very clear. Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of compassion, uh, is uh, at least grammatically a male figure. And if you look at uh, his equipment, you know, there is the rosary, the mala beads, the lotus flower, but there's also a few things where he can be quite active. You know, there's a hatchet and a bow and arrow, and, you know, he's quite capable of a engaging. So, one of the capacities of the mindfulness-infused, or the co compassion-infused mindfulness is capable of discerning action, you know, is capable of not just being with the pain, but also ameliorating, healing, or um, minimizing the pain aspect. So if I am compassionate with my own experience, with what's going on in my own being, and I will need that. I know nobody who does not need some compassion for the processes that he or she finds when he or she starts looking inward in a sober and close-up way. Some things cannot be fixed by mere wisdom, you know. If you start getting wise and look at some of the processes of your own heart, you'll probably need quite a bit of compassion to see what's going on in there, because Yeah, you know why. So the sati, that is both attentive, that is caring, that's the key word for compassion. It is capable of caring. Caring and being spacious enough to take in, that's one part of that quality of compassion, to be there, to be present for things that are not nice and still hold the relationship and then to actually 
to move to some form of compassionate attitude. Sometimes this attitude may be simple being there without wanting to fix it. Sometimes this compassionate attitude may translate into appropriate forms of action. As a meditator, this may be a soothing phrase I say to myself. Or this may be that I hold the pain at the same time get in touch with the parts of me that are whole, that are intact, that are okay. Mudita, similar. It is a bit less obvious. We seem to be easier, more easily capable of resonating with pain than resonating with joy. Often the, when we meet success and goodness in others, our first response is not mudita, it is envy. So in some ways it seems to be that karuna, compassion, travels more easily also to people whom we don't know, whose lives, whose story, or religion we don't share. While joy for others we can more easily feel when people are very close to us, our friends, parents, kids, lovers. However, they operate very similar compassion and joy. Both of them are the capacity to relate to that which is apparently other than mine. Now for the meditator, this means that we have to relate to the bits in our own experience that are often alienated or sidelined or squashed and we have to learn actually listening, resonating, holding without necessarily believing. Avalokiteshvara listens to the sounds of the world. He doesn't believe the sounds of the world. This is a very big distinction. There's a yes which says, yes, I hear you. And there is a yes which says, yes, I believe you. These are two different yes. The capacity to resonate doesn't mean I'm gullible or I'm blue-eyed and fall for the voices. Some of those voices in here, they need to be heard rather than believed. The fourth one, upeka, equanimity or Literally, the word comes from looking across over something, upaikshati, implying some degree of impartiality. This is a profound and often mistaken attitude. It means I am capable of holding the pain of something and recognizing the possibility for healing, of acknowledging, yes, there is a responsibility for this and I am not the sole responsibility for this. As a meditator, and for all the rest, we'll need a bit more air than is possible now. As a meditator, it means I am capable of acknowledging something difficult, unflattering, unbeautiful, and at the same time, I'm conscious that I don't need to be that for the rest of my days. There is something that conditions this current state and there is a history to that conditioning and yet 
it is possible to move beyond. This history is not the only story. There are many stories. And Upeka helps me finding a good story with my own life, with my own relationship to what's going on. It's finding a useful story, one that allows me to grow. So I acknowledge in Upeka both the seriousness and my capacity for strength. I say, yes, it has been that way for the first 50 years of my life, but that doesn't prove that it cannot be changed. It only proves I haven't completely understood. It doesn't disprove my potential for understanding. And while I have not understood this, I have understood many, many other things in life. So, why should it not be possible that I understand this as well? Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not worth it, or it's not possible to be understood or to be resolved. So the capacity to own without owning all of it, the capacity to be with pain or difficult or confusing things without giving up what I have learned, what I know, what I feel am able of. It's about balance and it's about an acknowledgement that even the most lost situation, that even the most pernicious habit, that even the most painful condition holds in its very core the possibility for growth, healing and liberation. The commentarial tradition relates four images to these Brahma-viharas. They're all mother images, maybe they help. The first one is the image of a mother that is basically in love with her newborn child. It's completely focused on it. The image of metta is that of a happy bonding experience. Every move, every perfume, every activity of the child is carefully monitored and is lovingly appreciated and welcomed. It's not easy, it's not difficult to give attention. Um, These are idealized images and uh, it is likely that they originated in the minds of men, uh, monastic men probably, so they may hold degrees of idealization. Some of the mothers in the room may feel is slightly over the top. However, um, uh, even monastic men have been born by women and they've, they must have had that from somewhere. So I trust it's not completely over the top. The image of compassion is that of a mother that does everything to help her sick child. She looks for medicine, she sacrifices night sleep, she may call for expertise from outside, she may even be willing to inflict pain on the child because she knows something is needed that the child at short term doesn't want and yet that the long term is needed. 
So she is capable not just of feeling concerned or distraught by it, but actually of taking action to help her child. I think that's a very convincing image. The third image is the image of a mother that rejoices in the successes of her child, you know, getting bigger, doing the first steps, lacing up the shoes for the first time, getting a college degree, whatever, successes, and is happy about the successes and the progress her child uh, makes. Mudita, capacity to resonate with the, uh, the gloriousness of kind of becoming bigger and stronger, more mature, maybe more fine-tuned, more sophisticated, learning one's own steps in many ways. The fourth image, the one for Upeka, for equanimity, is the poignant situation of a mother that has an adolescent child that uh, she knows has to make its own decisions. The mother, even though she knows better and she has more experience, she has to trust that her child makes decisions, even bad ones, that even bad decisions of her child are part of a learning experience that her child can handle even the consequences of bad decisions. She knows she cannot make the decisions in the place of the child even if they were, would be better decisions, that she would weaken the child thereby. So she has to be there with all her good wishes, with all her care and all her deep connection. At the same time, she has to let that child make decisions himself or herself. And she needs to trust that what she has brought to that child's life in terms of teaching and in terms of example and in terms of resources, she needs to trust that the child will take it from there. So I think these images do say something about attitudes and relationships. So if you sit down, if you turn inward, if you meet your inner world, consider those four modes of relating consider those four Brahma-viharas and how they translate into types of attitude that may differ from a, from a mere clinical observation of what's going on. Most of us don't need to be observed. Most of us respond to, be, to being related to. Screaming little children, they don't want observation. They want some form of attention and attuned uh, relationship rather than being meticulously observed. Most of the things that are screaming in our own hearts, screaming for liberation, screaming for growing up and screaming for attention, they need some kind of attuned relationship rather than just being seen to arise to wiggle a bit and then to disappear again. So, offer this for your reflection.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.